Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. An audience will forgive a bad episode of something if they love the characters. And, and um, you know, a lot of series have sort of skated by for a number of years on mediocre material just because the actors are so good. And, they, you know, they're, you know, the audience invites them into the home. They love to hang out with them. All right, my guest today is a man that actually needs no introduction. A guy who, in my opinion, if there's a Mount Rushmore for television casting directors, in my opinion, this guy's face is one of the four faces. He's incredible. He's worked on so many shows, you won't even believe it. If I were to list all these shows, I'm not going to list all of them. He's worked on One Day at a Time, Facts of Life, This is Spinal Tap, ER, Different Strokes, Married with Children, The Wonder Years, ALF, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, The Larry Sanders Show, The Nanny, Party of Five, The Drew Carey Show, The 70s Show, Norm, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Are You There, Chelsea, Last Man Standing, and of course, The Mother Load, of all shows of all time, Seinfeld. Please welcome as my guest today, Mark Hirschfeld. Thanks for coming, Mark. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this podcast because I want to talk about your side of the business, which isn't talked about that often, which is the side of casting. And what I always talk about to any artist that'll listen is like when you're an artist or you're an actor or an actress or a comedian, you're going in for an audition. There is no evidence normally of what happened to your agent or your manager or your friends or your family. The only evidence is in that room. And yes, there's a video recording of it, but you don't get to see it. All you know is what you feel, what happened, and you either get the call that you got the gig or you didn't. And I always say in television, it fascinates me. I said this on another podcast. It's like, This is one of the things that I really want you to identify is that to me, if you're an actor in television, 
Imagine if you're a, a man who's a, you know, married or a woman who's married. Imagine you have to meet somebody for five minutes, four times, and you have to decide whether you're going to marry them or you're going to be with them for the next seven years. Right. So in your profession in television, when you're casting a series regular, somebody has to fool you four times for five minutes and they can get a gig for seven years and be a multimillionaire. And it's your job to determine if they're fooling you or if they're real. Tell me about how you go about that process and how it is that you actually hire actors that don't fool you. The ones that come in and you know they're, there's a bullshit detector and, 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 and you've got it. And they don't know you have it, but they do a great job. But there's something about your expertise or thing that just says, hey, we're not going to have I've been fooled before. Um, But I think really it is about, you know, especially television. It's a. (laughs) With television, it's really a, a medium of personalities and. You can, you know, it's a combination of the actor who's the right fit for the role, plus if they sort of fill up the room, I guess you can say. And there are certain actors that just have that kind of charisma that when you, first of all, when you meet them, you, there is a bit of a bullshit meter that goes off and you can tell whether or not they have talent or not. And, um, Beyond the reading, it's really it's our job also to really kind of have a sense of their body of work. If I'm meeting a new actor, I want to you know see what else they've done, watch watch films that they've been in, see demo reels of some of the television work, film work they've done. But that's true. But this is what's fascinating for our listeners and our viewers is the fact that you have brought people in who had no credits, and you have push to hire people who have no credits. So sometimes, you know, everybody has to get a gig for the first time right. once. And you're somebody who has given people those kind of chances. So talk about the body of work thing, but talk about also when you're in a situation where you feel like giving somebody a chance, because we talk about this uh, on another podcast where you know, in the old days, the envelopes come in and the envelopes you open first were the big agencies right. and then all the way down. Sometimes Ed's agency never get op- never got opened. But, you know, you've given a lot of people chances. When do you decide that you're going to take the risk and say, you know what? This person has nothing, but there's an instinct I have. And I'm going to put them up against a person who's done three series and over 300 episodes of television. Well, I will say I've been one of those. And all casting directors are different. I open every envelope. (laughs) You know, these days it's I look at every submission. I may not go deep, but I really examine every submission that comes in, whether it's one of the big, you know, big agencies one of the 800-pound gorillas or one of the small agencies or managers. Uh, and what I really rely on is the passion of those agents and managers who, you know, feel very strongly about a client. Um, 
And if they, if they are passionate about someone, they will, um, communicate that to me and I can sense that and I'll meet that actor. As far as, um, uh, instinct, um, yeah, I think if, if I sit down with an actor, um, I can get a sense of if they've got something unique. You know, what I look for an actor is sort of a uniqueness. You know, there are a lot of kind of good looking leading men and women, but there, there are some that just have a specific sort of texture to them. And that's what I get excited about. Even if they, you know, they've just been in the Sunday company at the groundlings or, you know, they, they've done some commercials, things like that. Um, I just, you know, if they have something that sort of sets them apart and makes them unique and special, that's that's what I look for. Um, it's, Got it. So it's, yeah. so so it's it's a uniqueness. It's a they come into the it room. It could be and- the look. It could be their look. It could be you know whatever that quality is they have about them, but something that is unforgettable in a specific way. So let's go back because um, you're from New Jersey and I think you grew up in Manchester, Connecticut. I did. And you were an actor in high school and college. How do you sort of make the transition? Like what, tell me what happened because this is fascinating. Cause I, I know you worked with Norman Lear and I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about like, the point where you're in some job or doing something that you really maybe necessarily don't feel is right. What happened and how did you make the transition to casting? Well, I, you know, I would never audition for the lead. I love the kind of the, the comic relief roles, the, you know, the, the, the person who comes in and gets the laugh. I never wanted to act professionally, but I enjoyed it and it was good for my self-confidence. And, um, I love the camaraderie of other actors, but I knew it was nothing that I, I wanted to do professionally. And actually in college, I, um, um, I took television film. I wanted to be a filmmaker and specifically I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And, and you went to Syracuse, yeah. which is my, was my, where my dad went. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I, I went there and was I, the, was the varsity around when you were the, oh, absolutely. the varsity oh, piece yeah. of place. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, um, so I, I really, that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to write and I wanted to produce and specifically I wanted to do documentaries at the time. You know, Frederick Wiseman was like one of the great, um, documentary filmmakers of his time and, um, did these sort of exposés. Um, and that's something I wanted to do. So after I graduated, I worked as a PA in New York on, uh, this film called the warriors. And then, um, it was about gangs. I don't know if you, I saw saw that movie and I saw that movie in New York at 50th street. And that was, it was, it, it really messed me up. <laughs> well, I it was my first job. And as a matter of fact, I, I you were a PA on the show, but one of the, that was one of the first movies that I saw. What year was that movie? Uh, well, we made it in the summer of 78. Yeah. So when I saw that movie for the first time, it was one of the first times that I actually thought about casting and how people cast a movie because 
the cast of characters in that movie were so uh, unbelievably you talk about unique and extraordinary. Right. I mean, it just, it just, when I think about it, it gives me chills, you know, when I'm going through the parks and, you right, know, because exactly. it's, you know, just, uh, but anyway, you were a PA, you weren't a right. casting person. Yeah, on that. I literally, uh, at the time, you know, the Trump building that's, uh, it, um, um, across from Lincoln center at, um, the Trump Plaza it yeah. used to be the old Paramount building, mm-hmm. Gulf and Western building. So I used to break into the building and go up and down the stairwell, handing my resume out, trying to get a job. And the warrior production office open and I convinced them to give me a PA job. And the entire thing was shot at night. So, um, my hours where I had to report to work at 4 PM and then, uh, I worked till six in the morning and we would, you know, go out to Coney Island where we were shooting and, uh, my job was to, you know, get, go for coffee, do whatever. But then they would take their lunch break around 2 a.m. and they would leave me with the equipment while they all went to lunch. <clears throat> and by the way, we were surrounded by real gangs who, who were basically would come up to me after all the actors and the producers and director had left, go, oh, you know, these guys are real pussies. These aren't real gay. And I'm like, just trying to, hey, I'm just trying to guard the coffee machine. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was, you know, it was a real uh, interesting experience. I commuted in from Connecticut. So you're you're a Jewish guy around the gangs. You know, Jewish people don't have gangs. The only Jewish (laughs) gangs there are is we break into accountants' offices and fuck up the books. (laughs) That's our that's our Jewish. uh... Exactly. So um, now do you now do you I don't mean to interrupt, but do you you said you passed your resume all the way up and down the floors. Do you have more respect when uh, somebody knocks on your door of your office and you, your assistant opens the door and there's a person with a resume and a thing in their picture? And do you sometimes, because you did that to get your first job, do you sometimes take those things and actually give them your attention? Yeah. Well, look, I want, you know, I want people who are sort of passionate about what they do. I appreciate actors or anyone else could be someone that wants to be a future casting director or an assistant who sort of gives 110%. And, you know, those actors that sort of literally pound the pavement, knocking on doors, they also need to have the skill set. And there are plenty of those actors out there that are, you know, pounding the pavement. They're giving me their picture and resume. They're putting together these elaborate packets with their reel and whatnot. But they just don't have the experience and the tools. You know, you need both. And so, but believe me, if there's someone who, I mean, I, for example, I just hired a casting assistant who's going to work for me in New York. She is interning full time at a casting office without pay. And then on weekends and nights, she works retail to, to pay the rent. I mean, that's, that's the kind of person I work working for me. Someone who is hungry, because I was hungry. You know, Julie Ashton, Yeah, when she worked for Steven Spielberg as a young uh, a person in the business, they didn't pay hardly any money. It was, like, it was like nothingness. And I said, how do you make money? And she said that she was a Chippendales waitress, 
and she would put on her you know, whatever bustier and her panties and whatever the thing oh, was. God. And from 10 to 4 in the morning, she would probably make like $500 in cash. But then she'd have to go home, get two hours sleep yeah. and go work for Spielberg. So it's like so that's that's interesting to say. That. So you're 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 working on the Warriors. You're as a PA. How do you find out that you're in your mind that you want to do casting? Well, I'm Where does actually, that come from? I moved to L.A. Um, I just decided to test the waters. I had a cousin out here who was sleeping on her couch for a few weeks and literally at the time, you know, it was, this is pre 9-11. So it was pretty easy to sneak on to the studio lots. I was sneaking on the Burbank Studios lot, which was Warner Brothers at the time and Paramount and, and, um, you know, Columbia or whatnot. And, you know, knocking on doors, getting my resume. I got my first job. But you're giving your resume, but what do you, what do you, what's your objective, your job? Well, my there? objective was to start making a living in, I mean, I didn't know. I just but wanted you're to. But you putting your resume in, but you're not for any kind of position. Well, I, like I said, I just want to get my foot in the door. Uh-huh. So I, you know, my first job, I got a, uh, I was, uh, running mail on a bicycle at the Burbank Studios. I was uh, doing temp work at radio stations, and you know I had a, uh, um, I, I I got my first job as a runner on a live, it was a live talk show called America Live, which was sort of short lived, one season, but it was live from New York, L.A., and Chicago at the same time, which back then was sort of a, a huge task. And it was my job to buy the telefax machine, which, you know, was sort of a new invention at the time, to fax the script, you know, and coordinate the script between me, you know, my version in Chicago and New York, and then deliver the scripts. And then I did that all night. And then at 6 a.m., we did the show, and I showed up in Burbank where they did the show, and I was there to the, you know, I didn't have to do that, but I wanted to be on set. So that was my that was my sort of first paycheck. And then, um, I, um, I had had an interview. I had gotten an interview and I can't remember how with, uh, the head of, um, HR for Norman Lear's company at the time it was called Tandem Productions. And, you know, they were, they were doing all in the family. I mean, the, he was the man, um, you know, the Jeffersons and all in the family and, um, Fernwood tonight and uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I mean, the most exceptional. He was the equivalent time. of what Chuck Lorre might be today. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, but to, but to the thousandth power. Yeah, he was. He was because he was. Uh, I mean, because his material was also um, changing the sort of the political landscape at the time too. I mean, it wasn't just entertainment; it was thought-provoking. It was controver- incredibly controversial. So um, I had an interview with them, and then like six months went by, you know, crickets. And then I got a call from someone I had met on this America Live project who was working on the Jerry Lewis telethon, and they wanted to hire me for that. So I said yes, and immediately after I said yes, not 15 minutes later, the phone rang. It was a person from Norman Lear's company who said, look, we have a PA position it's on a pilot. It was less money than I was going to make. It was less amount of time. But I was like, I called up my friend and said, I got to turn down your job. I'm going to do this thing with Norman Lear's company. So I, I took the PA job on a pilot 
which was not cast yet. So you took less money, less money, less shorter time, period, yeah. shorter period, yeah, but to because work, to know, work with uh, even if you know I got him coffee, you know, I could, the equivalent in real estate of uh, you know better to buy a yeah. uh, shack in Beverly Hills than a mansion exactly. in wherever Englewood. Or, exactly. So um, I um, I took the job on this this pilot. There there are two pilots actually. One was called On Ice, which was um, was basically wings that took place up in Alaska about, you know, this little airfield and this private pilots. It's a comedy. The other one was this show called High Cliff Manor, which was a um, a parody of Dark Shadows. It was a, a comedic um, uh, soap. and uh, But they weren't cast yet. So there was nothing to do in the production office, but there was a lot to do in the casting office. So they actually lent me out to the casting office just to answer phones and everything. And that was, but that was it. I loved it. It was absolute bedlam there. And I absolutely loved that, the energy. And, um, I made myself indispensable. And, uh, how'd you do that? I just worked around the clock. I mean, I was, I was working, you know, 20 hours a day answering the phones, delivering scripts, whatever I needed to do. Um, and after my gig was up there, they sort of couldn't operate without me. So they approved another position and they made me an assistant in the office. And at the time it was myself and um, Robin Stoltz, who's now Robin Stoltz Nassif, who's now an, a children's agent, and um, Eve Branstein, who is the casting director there, and she worked under Jane Murray, who was sort of the guru who, you know, cast all in the family and all those shows. Um, and, and, um, there was, and I stayed there and it took me a few years, but there was just so, there was so much work. I mean, at the time they didn't really do pilots, you know, or let me put it this way. They would do a pilot, but it, all of them would go to series. It wasn't like now where you do a hundred pilots and like, Maybe, you know, 30% get picked up for season one and, you know, the attrition rates, another, you know, one third of them don't make it till or two thirds of them will make it to season two. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I mean, pretty much everything he did was on the air. So there was a lot of work. It was all multi-camera comedy. And... Um, not so we had to cast and before you know it there was so much to do they were delegating myself and robin we were casting stuff and i was casting four series at once and robin <laughs> was and 
first we had to cast all the guest stars and the you know the smaller roles, and then after we were done, at the end of the day, then we had to cast the extras. So I'm calling up people on the phone and asking them to come down and be an extra, and then we had to do all the contracts. It was it was we were doing we're 20 hours a week. So I should also add that 120 hours. A no, week? I, was doing, I was doing, you know, I, I, well, it was, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. And, um, I should also say that once again, I took a pay cut when I was a gopher, I was making, you know, I think I was making like 210 bucks a week, but mileage on my car I was making like 25 cents a mile. I was putting like 500 miles a week on the car. Um, so when I took the job in casting, they reduced me to like $185 a week, but no, you know, I had no mileage. So I, I really took a, a big pay cut there, but I felt like this was what I really wanted to do. And so I stuck with it and, uh, I was good at it. And eventually, uh, I got promoted to casting director and then, um, so your first job, um, if I'm not mistaken, was it one day at a time or was it a, do- a uh, yeah, job before that? It was probably, it was, Probably uh, different strokes and one day at a time. And um, so take me, first of all, before you got to that point, tell me the moment that happened where, where you said, I can, I can do this. I, 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 I can be great at this. Not the energy of the office thing, but the moment where you saw somebody, they came in, they read, and you're like, I can, I can do this. What, 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 what hire, what actor, what moment in the room happened where you said, I'm never going to do anything else again besides this? I guess I love what actors do in the room, you know, and watching, you know, having a casting session and having a dozen actors come in and read the same part in a dozen different ways. It, you build up an enormous amount of respect for those actors and, um, you really get a sense of what works and what doesn't and why and sort of how all those puzzle pieces sort of fit together as you're putting together an ensemble. It was just a very exciting um, thing to be a part of. Definitely it's something that doesn't get a lot of visibility and sort of people don't, they sort of take it for granted including producers, by the way. Um, and that's always been something that, you know, I don't have a huge ego. So um, if you did have one, it would be incredibly soul crushing because there you don't get a lot of kudos for what you do. Um, but it is next to the script, the most important element of a production um, and sometimes more, more so because, uh, well, Norman Lear, uh, used to downplay the writing and say, listen, it's all in the casting. It is because, um, an audience will forgive a bad episode of something if they love the characters and, and, um, you know, a lot of series have sort of skated by for a number of years on mediocre material just because. The actors are so good and they, you know, they're, you know, the audience invites them into the home. They love to hang out with them. Yeah. So, um, we're going to do something a little bit unusual. I'm going to mention a show that you worked on 
and I want you to tell me one holy shit moment from each show that something that happened it could be something that happened within your job it could be an, an actor that came in that you never nobody ever gave the time of day to and you believed in them and fought for them and got the job or it could be somebody that the network said no to and they became a star or it could be something having to do with anything having to do with the production but something that would be like a highlight chapter of your book if you were writing about that particular show. Right, I'll try. <laughs> are, 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 you, are you ready? It will tax my memory, but okay. Larry Sanders show. Larry Sanders show. I would say the most interesting moment was when we were casting the role that Jeffrey Tambor, I'm sorry, not Jeffrey Tambor, that uh, Rip Torn got. And it was really between Rip Torn and a wonderful actor named John Glover for the role. And, uh, John read and was fantastic. And he was a lot slicker. He was kind of like, uh, uh, the slicker version of the producer of the show. And Rip would not read for the role. And, um, and Gary was, oh, I can't sign off on Rip unless I can get him in the room and read. So Gary convinced Rip. To come into the room with him. This is, you know, all the network, you know, the, I think I, I'm almost certain that, um, if not the network was there for sure, Brad Gray was there and all, we all had to step out of the room. The door closed and Gary was going to talk to Rip and, uh, he was the only one in the room and he convinced Rip to read with him. And we were all like sitting outside of that room. It must have been for 45 minutes. Going, what is going on in there? And um, the door opened, Rip left, and then we all kind of were shepherded into Gary's office. He said, Rip's the guy. And, you know, the network never got to see it, but they had to just believe him, and we went with Rip Torn. Wow, that's a great story. Um, different strokes. The most interesting thing about that show was that it was actually – um, developed for Conrad Bain. Um, Gary Coleman was cast afterwards, obviously. I mean, they, they knew Gary Coleman. They, they, um, uh, they wanted to make a show with him because he was so precocious and, you know, wise beyond his ears. And I mean, he was really extraordinary. And they convinced Conrad Bain to leave Maud or to move from Maud over to that show. And, um, to his credit, Conrad said, um, I always want to be tied financially to Gary Coleman. And uh, at the time, they were like, or I, I think it was actually, it was, I always want to be the highest paid actor on the show. So um, that was in his contract. And when Gary became the star of the show, uh, Con they had, Conrad had that parody <laughs> with him the entire time. <laughs> So that was good for him. Incredible. The Wonder Years. The Wonder Years. Um, I'm not sure I have a, um, not sure if I have a, uh, I'm not, I don't know if I know if I have a, a moment for that one. That's okay. Married with Children. Now, this is something where you were involved in the very beginnings of the Fox Network and the, you know, the shows that uh, obviously 
you know, help them really launch. So married with children was okay. a big, big, big moment in your career. It was. Big... And yet it was really, you know, all the shows that launched the, the Fox Network with these big commitments, like the George C. Scott show. And there were, you know, a number of other shows like that they had commitments to. And those were the ones that really got the attention. And Married with Children was a script that was written. And then, um, uh, they wanted to get, they wanted Sam Kinison and they wanted Roseanne for the leads. And, uh, both of them turned them down. <laughs> and so, you know, Levitt and Moy, who are the guys that wrote it, well, Levitt and Michael Moy, we're like, well, I don't know what we're going to do now. And I was just like, you know, I was just on staff. What's, what's bit. odd is that they want to, they want to launch the network. They want two stand up comedians that have no acting background. No, but you know, it, to, they, to, to it to was sort of written for them. They literally wrote those roles for those two people. Um, because, you know, they saw it as sort of the Bickersons. It's, it, it would have been, can you imagine with that show? It would have been sort of this big, ugly, Really a sketch it would have been. And when they both passed, Ron Levin and Michael Moy were very kind of laid back, like, oh, well, I don't know, I guess that's it. And I, you know, was just sort of a lowly casting director on the staff. I was like, well, let's just try to cast it. So um, we, you know, just started reading actors and we saw everybody. And um, at the time... I'm from Har- Manchester, Connecticut, and every time I go back to see my family, we go to Hartford, Connecticut, which is right next door, and go to the Hartford stage. And Ed uh, o- I'm, I'm from Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Oh, okay, okay, you know that. And they have wonderful productions there. And this is, I mean, this is probably a year earlier, I had gone to see a production of, of Mice and Men at the Hartford stage, and Ed O'Neill was Lenny in it, and he was wonderful. Now, had you known Ed before? No, not at all. No, he was a New York actor. He'd done some kind of Broadway and off-Broadway. Um, he'd done a failed pilot called Popeye Doyle based on the French mm-hmm. Connection, which I never saw. Um, but, you know, in that role, he was this sort of gentle giant. And I said, you know, there's this guy, Ed O'Neill. I think we should try to read him for it. And uh, he happened to be in L.A. So um, he came into the room. And just, you know, he, he, you know, he actually walked into the room at the beginning of the scene and he came in and just kind of hunched over and, you know, this, this sort of defeated quality and started the scene and then sat on the couch and kind of put his hand in his pants. And that was it. (laughs) He owned it. He was so incredible. And so, um... Uh, we, um, we decided we're going to test him. And then the, uh, the other actor who was the front runner. Oh no, of course. Oh my God. I, I just forgot his name. Um, we had another front runner for the role. And so we, we're going to test them. And then, uh, I had known of Katie Seagal. I never met her, but she was on, there was a very short lived Mary Tyler Moore show where she was a journalist or something. And Katie Seagal was in that series as a regular as like the wacky photographer or something. So she came in and, um, and auditioned and was just great. 
she was great. And then the other choice was this wonderful um, um, actress named Nancy Lenahan, who you would recognize in a minute. So, um, so th- those were the two for that role. And th- we were the first um, series to ever go to network for network approval because the other shows were all commitments, you know, but we were sort of the show that, you know, and, and by the way, we had a, um, a 13 episode commitment as like all those shows did, because that was the only way to, you know, convince people to do a show on the Fox network. It's a new startup. And, um, so we went to the network and Garth and Sear was there and he, you know, was, he was, he, he was there and Barry Diller was there and, um, our actors read and, uh, left the room and Ed O'Neill was great. And, but Barry Diller said, I don't know. I don't think he's the guy. And, uh, but you do whatever you want. And he left the room and we're all just sitting there like, oh my God, what are we going to, you know, no one really knew what to do. So they got nervous about Ed and they went back and oh, I should, I should also mention beforehand, Ed O'Neill passed. They were trying to make his test deal and he just, he got cold feet and decided he didn't want to do it. Wow. And so, um, the producer's like, oh, well, I said, well, oh, well, we got to make that deal. So they went back and, uh, and they eventually convinced him and closed the deal. And I think they put a little bit more money on the table, but still it was very modest at the time. So anyway, they got very nervous after Barry Diller didn't sort of give him his blessing. And so they went back and they remember all these actors had a 13 uh, episode pair play. Um, they went back. Pair play meaning that even if the show was canceled after four episodes, the network would have to pay them for 13. 13, yeah. So they went back and renegotiated Ed's deal for one episode with an option for the additional episodes because they weren't sure. They didn't want to, you know, if they had to cut their losses. Uh, they didn't want to be on the hook for 13 episodes. So, um, I will say that night, um, with the audience and the show, it was absolutely electric. It was just, you you could, it was just one of those moments you go, this is a big fat hit. And because there was nothing on TV like it. And I don't even, I I think they might've even exercised this option that evening. Um, (laughs) and the rest is history. The only one that was, uh, really, uh, committed to the show is David Garrison because, uh, he was the, the neighbor and that's because Levin and Moy had worked with him on a short lived series called it's your move with him and Jason Bateman with the stars of Jason Bateman was a kid at the time. And, um, and so David came into that show as the neighbor and they had to convince him because he wanted to be a New York theater actor. And after it's removed on, he had gone back to New York and he wanted to do that. So they had to sort of convince him to come back and do that. Tell me about, uh, in that show before we move on to another one, uh, Christine Applegate. Applegate. Well, the, you know, the original pilot, we had two other kids. So the original pilot, so you cast two kids that didn't make the cut. Exactly. So you, 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 even you, as great as you were, 
They fooled you. Well, not really. We went with the best actors available. And that's part of the thing with pilot season is sometimes you have to make compromises just as people. Are you saying that Christina had another pilot? She did. Oh, got it. She did have a pilot. It did not move forward. It was actually, I believe it was even a series she was on. So she wasn't available. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Did one of the two kids that got cut and fired after that show, did either one of them go on to have fruitful careers? No, no. So it could be argued that maybe... They might have. They did fool you. Maybe. But like I said, at the time, and, you know, a pilot is, you know, it's a work in progress. But talk about the Christine. So afterwards, you still, you still, they they fire those two and they're bringing more people. Right. So, so it was clear that the, the kids weren't exactly what they wanted. And part of it was, um, you know, show, show sort of finds itself during the process and they really sort of rewrote the kids um, to make Bud like the, the schemer, the Michael J. Fox as, as it were of the group. And they wanted uh, the girl to be the bimbo, uh, you know, even at a young age. And so Christina was on another series it was called heart of the city or something like that. And it got canceled. And then we auditioned her and we set her and then, um, Faustino, I think we just had not seen before. And so that's how he came into the show. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then Amanda Bierce, who played the neighbor, I had seen, she had never done comedy before, but I had seen her in, um, the movie. You remember that? It was a horror movie called House. Yes. Yeah. And she played sort of the young ingenue in it. And I was like, Oh my God, I thought she was great. And she came in uh, and that's how I, I knew of her. The nanny. The nanny. We literally, it was the last pilot to be picked, uh, to be picked up that season. I think we had like two weeks to cast it. Usually have 10 to 10 weeks at least to cast the pilot. I think we had two weeks to cast it. And I think we only had four casting sessions and we cast the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. Um, we had no time and, you know. Now, was Fran attached? Yeah. It was developed for Fran. Got it. Third Rock from the Sun. That was a show that 
we cast, usually it's a 10 week casting process on that show. I think we cast it for almost a year, <laughs> almost a year. Real? <clears throat> yeah. Um, why was that? Because it was Carsey Werner and Tom and Marcy. It's Tom uh, Werner and Marcy Carsey right. who were uh, prolific. They did Cosby. They did Sybil, Grace Under Fire, Roseanne. Exactly. Cosby. Exactly. Um, um, they um, wanted to get it right. And we, it was a very long process to first to come to John Lithgow, who uh, originally didn't want to do it. I think. If I'm correct, the first person they went to was Jeff Goldblum, who didn't want to do it. We had a meeting with him. Ultimately, then we got John Lithgow on board, and that took several months. And then we started the casting process. And the original concept for um, the French Stewart role was kind of a, a, a like a young John Belushi. They literally wanted a heavy guy. They wanted a, you know... Um, and we saw every heavy actor, <laughs> character actor in the country for months. And then ultimately I said, all right, there's a guy I'm going to bring in. He's not that at all, but he's really funny. He had done, I'd seen him at, um, do a play at a little theater on like the Las Palmas theater or something. And, um, and then he had done, I think one line for me on Seinfeld. And I said, this guy is really interesting. He's not at all what you want. Oh, and I even think he had done, oh, he had done, actually I did a pilot, um, a short lived series based on click and clack, the Tappet brothers. George Went was one of the stars of, and French was in that, and that got canceled, and then um, and Pat Finn was the other character, and that got canceled. I said, all right, I'm going to bring him in on this. It's not at all what you want, but this guy's really funny, and he came in and he was hysterical, and he left the room, and uh, Tom and Marcy were like, yeah, but he's got those squinty eyes. I don't <laughs> know if that's really. You know, that's what we want. And, but of course, you know, ultimately he got the part and was just, you know, fantastic. And then Kristen Johnson, who was plays, you know, basically the male alien trapped in the female body was someone that we had auditioned. We probably auditioned her three times and, um, they kept not being sure that she was the one. She, I remember she went back to New York for the holidays and they wanted to fly her out again to read with John. And she was like, I'm not coming. She's like, I don't want to do it. I'm not leaving for the holidays. And we had to convince her the to get the power of no. Yeah. And we had to convince her to get on the plane to fly out to read one more time. It was like the fourth time um, with John Lithgow. And then she got the part. Incredible. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there was uh, Joey, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was just, you know, for a kid his age to have those skills, you know, those mad skills. How old was he at the time oh that he got God. the... I don't know. Maybe he was 13? He was, he was you know, he was incredible. Drew Carey show. 
Drew Carey show. I'm trying to think. Um, I think the one thing about the Drew Carey show was it was always a work in progress. I don't have a specific story, although it was it was always last minute. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, I didn't cast Curb Your Enthusiasm. I was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, oh, that's right. Yes. Um, How did they t- were doing? They were doing the whole re- Seinfeld reunion episode, and so I got a call from the producer saying, "Would you want to be in the show and play yourself as the casting director of the reunion show?" And those acting chops from long ago. Yeah, I was very hesitant, but my wife is like, "You got to do it." So I. Um, I was supposed to be in two episodes. Uh, the first one was the table read episode and th- they were doing that one first. And then they were doing the episode where they're casting um, the love interest. And uh, the first episode I got snowed into New York. I couldn't get out. There was a massive snowstorm. I couldn't come in, but then I came in uh, for the second episode and I did that. It was just great. It was so much fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. 
So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.